Would you please turn with me to your study outline? And uh, as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study. We also want to welcome our friends in Kalispell, Montana, and also our friends at Arco, Idaho. We are so glad that you're joining us today for our study of God's Word. So we have done a man of purpose, Pastor Jay Walden. Uh, now we're going to talk about some men of purpose examples uh, within the Bible, the Rechabites. Men of purpose, here's our big idea for the morning. Men of purpose make commitments, and men of purpose keep um, commitments. And so we've looked at a man of purpose. Now let's look at men of purpose, the Rechabites, in 600 BC, the Rechabites. Uh, This is an example that Jeremiah the prophet used. Uh, Israel, well, actually the northern part was called Israel, the southern part was called Judah. So Judah was going through a time of incredible breaking of commitments. They were commitment breakers, and they were not commitment or promise keepers. And so Jeremiah now is going to go into the temple, and in front of all the people, use the Rechabites as a sermon illustration for the rest of the nation of Israel. He's going to say, look, these people are able to keep commitments. You need to keep your commitments uh, to God. And so chapter 35 has a single objective, and that is to contrast the obedience of the Rechabites, and by the way, it can be spelled with a C or a K, so it's not misspelled either way, to contrast the obedience of the Rechabites with the disobedience of the nation of Judah. And so what's not so important is the specific commitments, uh, because those uh, may or may not be biblical. But the important thing is that they kept their commitments. They're kind of like why we admire the Amish, Okay, uh, The Amish, we don't necessarily think you biblically to be a Christ follower. You have to do all the things that the Amish do. And yet we admire them because in a culture that is so much uh, moral decadence and, and decay and, and so much non-commitment keeping between each other and between us and God, we admire the Amish because of the way they keep their commitments. And the same thing is true with the Rechabites. Their forefather, this being Father's Day, their father was a man by the name of Jonadab. He was the son of Rechab, hence the name the Rechabites. And he was prominent, you'll read about him in the Bible, he was prominent in purging the northern part of Israel, the nation of Israel, from Baal, or Canaanite, false god worship, the worship of idols, during the time of King Jehu, who is the king in the northern kingdom, Israel, 840 B.C., so about 200 years before, he was known as a guy that would stand against idolatry and stand for commitment uh, to God. And so he had given a certain challenge to his followers, that they would always live a nomadic life, not to live in the cities, but to live in the country in in tents, because idol worship was centered in the cities of Israel. And so he wanted to protect them from the temptations of idol worship, so he, he commanded all of his descendants to live as nomads in tents and not to settle down in the city. And it's an interesting observation that the more urbanized a nation becomes, the more it drifts from moral convictions. And we can see that in the history of our own country. We can see it in the history down through the years of other countries. That somehow, when we all get crowded together, it seems like the temptations increase. And so the more urbanized we become, many times we face uh, greater temptations, particularly into idolatry, the idolatry of our time, and the moral uh, convictions of our time. Now, another thing he challenged them about uh, was uh, not drinking because Baal worship or Canaanite uh, god worship was connected with heavy drinking. It was a big part of the worship of idols was heavy drinking. 
And so he said, look, I don't want you to drink at all. He commanded them to abstain completely from alcohol because heavy drinking was associated with idol worship and to live as nomads because then there would be less temptation like there was in the cities. So basically what the Rechabites were doing is they were almost like countercultural protesters against the religious and moral decay of their country. And that's what God has called us to do, to live lives of commitment so that we will, as the New Testament says, shine like stars in the universe, that people will look at the people of Purpose Church and say, there are people who make commitments and keep commitments, and they will be drawn to Christ by the example of commitment keepers within a culture and society that less and less makes and keeps uh, commitments. So here's what the passage says, uh, chapter 35, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord, that is the temple, and give them wine to drink. Verse 3, so I went to get Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaziniah, and his brothers and all his sons. By the way, child dedication time. You're looking for Bible names. Here's some great Bible names. You want something different? Okay. The whole family of the Rechabites. Verse 4. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdalia, uh, the man of God. This is not to be mistaken for Andre Iguodala uh, for the Golden State Warriors, who is also a man of God. Uh, but this is a different one, Igdalia. Iguadala. I just love saying that. Just an excuse to say that name, Andre Iguadalia. Okay, anyway, it was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Messiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Verse 5. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the Rechabites and said to them, drink some wine. And we're all thinking, now that's the kind of prophet I'm talking about, all right? Man alive. I mean, Jeremiah was known as kind of a downer, but not here. What a great prophet. It reminds me of, wasn't it last year, um, when instead of the root beer floats, I think we had the dad's long neck brown bottle root beer, dad's root beer. And so people drove by our church and they saw hundreds of men coming out swigging these brown bottles. And driving by, that, hey, honey, that's the church I want to go to next Sunday. Okay, so that, that's, that's not the point here, all right? Here is the point. Verse 6, but they replied, we do not drink wine, because our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have, this is the point. We have obeyed everything our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We've lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather, Jehonadab, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Aramean armies. So we've remained in Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, okay, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, go and tell the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. 
To this day they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I've given you and your ancestors. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring on Judah and on everyone else living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jehonadab, and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a descendant to serve me. God is looking, looking across our world, looking across our nation for the Rechabites of the day, men and women of purpose who make commitments and who keep commitments. uh, Jeremiah preached this in one of the temple courts, and it was a five-point sermon with the Rechabites as his living video clip, his living illustration. Number one, point one of his sermon was, the Rechabites obeyed a human leader, their, their father, their forefather. Judah was supposed to obey God. How much more should they obey God when God gives them a command than the human command of, of somebody's uh, forefathers, of, of an ancestor? Second point of his sermon, Jonadab gave his commands to the Rechabites once, but God repeated them over and over again. One time, uh, 200 years before, Jonadab said, this is what I want you to do. Man, I wish that happened in my home. I really do, you know? Just like, I I say one thing to the kids, and 200 years later, they're still obeying dad. You know? Uh, He says it once to them. Two centuries before, they're still obeying it. But God says, I have repeated my commands to you over and over again, and you don't obey. Point three of his sermon. The commands of the Rechabites were only for this life. They only had to deal with how to conduct your life in this life. But God's commands have to do with eternity. So how much more should we obey the commands of eternity than they did the temporary commands of their forefather? Point number four of his sermon. The Rechabites obeyed for over 200 years. Israel constantly disobeyed. Their father said it to them once. They obeyed it for 200 years. And God says, here I am, your heavenly father. I've I've given you a command over and over again. You constantly disobey. And so the result is point five of Jeremiah's sermon. The, The nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, is going to be punished. But the Rechabites are going to be rewarded. Back to verse 19, if we could. Uh, in Judah's be punished. Rechabites are going to be rewarded. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a descendant to serve me. And there's even people that believe they found the descendants of the Rechabites in the Middle East today still serving God. And that's what we pray for our church family as well. Now, we want to finish up with an historical example. And Pastor Greg's going to come up to do the first half of the life of Eric Little, and then I'm going to come back uh, for the end of his life.
And as I mentioned, we, we really believe that biographies are helpful to see how it fleshes out. And Pastor Greg, this is why I think it's so good that you're doing the, this uh, section here of his athletic part. I'll do the missionary part at the end. You can do the <laughs> athletic part. Because Pastor Greg reminds me of Eric Little. You know, Pastor Greg... Uh, probably the greatest athlete in our church. He was um, an academic All-American for Loyola Marymount in volleyball. And so he was, uh, all, I mean, we're talking top All-American, big school, big university, All-American in volleyball. I mean, I know I wouldn't want to face you across the net, you know. The, this would be my pose right here, you know, is what, I, uh, what that would be. And so he's kind of an Eric Little who used his faith and spoke about the Lord and yet at the same time was a tremendous athlete. Would you welcome Pastor Greg Zvalsad. Well, I am excited uh, to talk about Eric Little. Um, of course, uh, those of you who saw Chariots of Fire back in the 80s, it was the best picture that year, and very excited about that aspect of it. But especially because as we talk about this idea of someone, an example of someone who made and kept commitments, Eric Little is a, is a great example of that. And he learned it from his parents. <clears throat> we see that Eric was born in 1902, and his parents were missionaries in China at the time. And uh, in that part of uh, China's history, uh, right after the Boxer Rebellion, when uh, Ch Chinese militants had murdered thousands of Christians, uh, missionaries, and Westerners to try to drive them out of the, the country. And the Littles knew the dangers that were there. And yet they had made a commitment. They were following after God's call on their life. And so they remained there as a family, uh, depending on God to protect them, even though it was very dangerous. And so Eric learned about commitments from his parents, what they taught him as he grew up, but especially what he caught from them as he saw their example. As we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And we see how uh, Eric Little saw his parents following after Christ. We see how he followed after Christ, and we can follow that example. Well, Eric, was uh, when he was five years old, his parents were on furlough, and so they went back to Europe. And I think we have a picture of he and his older brother Robert here when they were young. Uh, and when they went back on furlough, then uh, he and his brother remained in London uh, to do their schooling, even though his parents were going back as missionaries. And Eric, when he was younger, was very sickly and weak. And so no idea that this would ever become this great athlete uh, that, that he became. And as he was growing up, uh, as he got into his teens, he and his brother both began to excel in athletics, playing cricket. Uh, Pastor Sham, our uh, professional cricket player of the past, uh, played cricket and rugby, the, the sports of that time. But also, uh, Eric started to excel in track and field, the high jump, the long jump, uh, the sprints, and all those kinds of things. But there was a, a contrast between Eric and his brother that was clear very early, where Robert was very uh, outspoken and gregarious. Uh, Eric was very shy. Uh, uh, where Robert was involved in the debate team and in taking on leadership in their teens. Uh, Eric was into math and science and sports, but he was very shy. But that shy nature didn't keep him from being really ferocious on the athletic uh, competition side. And so uh, he started to see early his staggering uh, natural ability start to show itself. 
And so after high school graduation, he returned to Scotland and he entered into the University of Edinburgh and he was going to, he studied uh, physics and chemistry and he also earned a place on the university track team. And so he started competing uh, across the nation in Scotland and very early on, uh, he started attracting attention as he won uh, the 100 meters, especially the 100 yard dash at that point. Uh, and uh, they started to predict that this was a hope for Scotland that they could actually have an Olympic hopeful in their midst. And so they started calling him the Flying Scotsman, and they started to hear about him all across the nation. And so uh, in 1923, he got his first invitation uh, because they knew of his faith and his athletic renown. They, uh, a evangelistic group asked him to speak after one of the competitions. And he said yes, because early on, he'd had a, a, a call to follow God wherever he led and to, to serve him in ministry. Uh, and he said yes right away, and then he regretted it right at that moment, because he knew he wasn't a public speaker, and he was scared to death about it. And so uh, he started to regret it, but then he received a, a note, a letter from his sister Jenny. And at the end of it, uh, she quoted Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10 reads, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He felt like that was a word from God that reaffirmed that, uh, that, that call on his life and that God would be with him, that, that his commitment would overcome the fears that were there and that he would do the work of the Lord. And now few who ever heard him would describe him as a dynamic speaker. Again, he was shy and they would describe him as, as soft-spoken. But there was something about that commitment. There was something about the, the assurance he had, the, the hope and the security he had in Christ that when he spoke, uh, it was very powerful. And many people, many, especially men, uh, those who are into athletics, uh, would not come to a church to hear somebody speak, but they would come out. And so crowds kept coming out to hear him. Uh, his daughter would later say that his, his, uh, her father always said, I don't know why people would ever come to listen to me, but because of his athletic renown, crowds would come to hear him speak. And so he said this, My whole life had been one of keeping out of the public eye, but the leading of Christ seems now to be in the opposite direction, and I naturally shrank from this direction. At this time, I finally decided to commit to put, all, put it all on Christ. After all, if he called me to do it, then he would have to supply the necessary power. In going forward, the power was given to me. Well, in the uh, uh, movie, we see uh, the, uh, the, the lead-up to uh, Eric's training for the Olympics and all that. Uh, he was a, a person that was committed to training. And so he had, a, he had a voluntary trainer who, because of his rigorous academic schedule and all this speaking, he had to have this trainer that would keep him focused on, on the physical training that he needed to do. And so he, he trained uh, harder than all the rest of the, the athletes. And so we see that, that training. The film accurately portrays uh, his unique, unorthodox style of running, the kind of windmills that his arms would do and his high leg kick and how his head would go back. He couldn't even see the finish line because his head would go back and his mouth would go open at the end. And the trainer didn't try to change that about him, his natural style. Instead, he, he trained uh, him to work hard and to, to maximize those uh, for his success. But his training was not only physical training. We see in First Timothy 4, verse 8, for physical training is of some value. And we know that to be true. I wish I did a lot more physical training these days uh, to stay in shape. But it is of value, and, and we see that in his life. 
But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And we saw that lived out in Eric's life. He joined a, a group of men at Oxford, uh, out of Oxford University, a group of Christian men who had a commitment to surrender completely to God in four areas and to not only make those commitments but to keep those commitments together, uh, to, to be committed to absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. And so we see an example of that commitment to physical training but also uh, to, to spiritual training. Well, also, there was a commitment to winning. <laughs> and that actually uh, is a true event. Um, you know, we see it in, in look at our professional athletics now, and you think, oh, that must have been some kind of a picnic uh, race or something like that. That was a national competition. The best runners from, from England, Scotland, and Ireland racing to see who would represent the nation. And so that was, those were the top runners uh, in a national competition. And he fell, uh, and in a race like that, the, where in a top race like that, the, the winner would be decided by hundreds of a second. And so to fall in a race like that and be 20 yards behind, um, it was absurd to think that somebody would ever win a race like that. And it just is a picture of what he's described as the, the, the drive that he had. Uh, the competitive nature that he had, and it was almost superhuman what he did that day. In fact, it shows him collapsing at the finish line. He actually, uh, he, he, he did so much, uh, there was so much intensity in that race that he did uh, damage to his uh, muscle tissue. He had headaches. It took him months uh, to recover from what he did that day. And sometimes as Christians, um, we, we, we struggle with, and I think especially sometimes as men, as we, as we know that we're supposed to love others and we're supposed to put others above ourselves, there's this sense of that seems to be at odds with that, this idea of competing or winning or achieving. And, and whatever atmosphere you're in, whether it's athletics or in your career or those kinds of things, there could be this sense that it's at odds. And Eric Little is such a, a perfect example of this in that that his, his will to win was not at, at odds with his faith. Instead, his faith boosted that will to win because his will to win was for, for God's purposes, to glorify God uh, through what he was able to achieve. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, we read, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? You run to win. Do you not know, uh, run in such a way as to get the prize? Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. After a famous race, when uh, some of the, uh, after that race that we just saw, some of the onlookers asked how he managed to win. Little again seized the opportunity to give the glory to God when he said, the first half I ran as fast as I could. The second half I ran faster with God's help. Well, we see that, that competitive drive, the, the will to win, and what he was achieving, and this, this path he had to an Olympic gold medal. He was the, the odds-on favorite coming up for the Paris Olympics to become uh, the 100-yard uh, gold medal and to win the first gold medal uh, in that event for Scotland. Well, and to, to heighten the dramatic effect in the movie, if you saw Chariots of Fire, uh, they, you get the idea that he boards the ship to go just to, right before the Olympics is when he finds out that the event is going to be on Sunday, on the Sabbath. Well, it actually was months and months before the event. So he had a, a long time when he found out what the schedule was going to be. And, but the rest of it is, is accurate to, to what actually happened. 
Eric, as far as he was concerned, he had a commitment, uh, as, as Pastor Glenn was talking about, just like the Greek bites. That, that commitment was to the Sabbath, uh, of keeping it holy as the commandment was. And for him, the idea was that, that well, what holy means is to be, have that day set apart for the Lord. And so for him, it was, it was beyond his thinking that, that if he was going to obey that command, that he would play games, even be in the Olympic Games, or that he would focus on personal achievement on the Sabbath day. And so he was committed to keep the Sabbath and not to compromise that commitment. Well, when he made that commitment, the, the uh, whole British Olympic team and, and all of the name of, nation of Scotland was, was in an uproar. They couldn't believe he would sacrifice everything for this silly commitment that he had. And so they tried to convince him. They, they said, well, the, the races are going to be in the afternoon on Sunday. So you can keep your commitment to the Sabbath in the morning. You can go to a worship service. And then you've got the whole afternoon to focus on the Olympics. But, but he wasn't buying that. He, his commitment was to keep that Sabbath holy the whole day. And so they felt betrayed by the hero. They tried everything they could to get him to compromise or to give him a rationale, a reason that he could still go on and do that. But in his mind, uh, what was most important to him was he felt he knew the, the mind of God on this for him and that that commitment was something that he needed to keep. And so he made the commitment that he was not going to, to run on the, on the Sabbath. And notice that as he did that, even with all the opposition, and he, he went from being the national hero to being the goat, you know, he was going to throw away and betray the nation and not go after this gold medal, and yet he didn't get up on a soapbox and preach to everyone else. It wasn't a keeping his commitment by, by pointing his finger at everybody else and saying, yo, you're sinners and you're going to hell because you're doing what I'm not going to do. Instead, he quietly made his commitment and stepped back uh, from racing that race. The decision re, uh, gave the, the, the expression of his value, that his value was on obedience over anything the world had to offer. Matthew six thirty three, uh, Jesus' words, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So in the end, just six months before the Paris Olympics, he made this commitment not to run the 100 meters, which he was favored in, and to switch events, and to switch events to the, the middle distances. And if you don't know anything about track, it's not just that he ran uh, longer races, the, the 200 meters and the 400 meters. It's, those are completely different races. He, went from, he's, he was a sprinter, and to, to run those races took a whole different set of, of uh, athletic abilities and, and training and strategy. But in six months' time or five months' time, he became one of the top uh, contenders in that, and he was able to uh, get a place on the Olympic team in those two events. Well, uh, as the Olympics came on, on, Monday, on Sunday, uh, he was observing the Sabbath when uh, his, uh, his rival from his nation, uh, Harold Abrams, won the gold medal, the first gold medal in that event in the 100 meters. And then he actually finished uh, third, got a bronze medal in the, the 200, and then came the, the final in the 400. And uh, the, all the uh, uh, experts uh, knew that the American Horatio Fitch uh, would win the 400. Uh, he had, that had been his race. Uh, in fact, in the semifinals, he got a world record, and, and Eric Little's time was, was much slower than that. And then uh, on top of that, when they went to draw the lanes, Eric Little got the outside lane, which is the worst lane uh, for that event because you can't see the other runners. Um, 
But the, the race started, and uh, I want, you can watch the movie to see all the drama involved in it. But uh, Eric Little took off like a sprinter, and nobody th- everybody thought, oh, he's blown this race because he's way out ahead of everybody, and he's going to run out of gas. But he stayed ahead all the way to the end, uh, came to the end, and instead of uh, running out of gas, uh, his head went back, and he crossed that finish line, set a new world record, and uh, won by five yards, uh, unheard of against, above, uh, in front of everybody else. Before that race, uh, nobody knew until afterwards that as he was uh, going from the hotel to the uh, training uh, facility to get ready for the race, uh, somebody handed him a folded, uh, folded note. And on that note, it said uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, these words from that verse that say, Those who honor, I, honor me, I will honor and that note was that encouragement to him that, that God's promise to those who make and keep commitments is that when we honor him, uh, he will honor us. And so uh, when he won that race, uh, the, the, uh, he got the gold medal. And one of the things we think about is that the reason we had movies made about him and that we're talking about him today is not because he won a gold medal. Uh, it's because of that commitment that he made and the commitment that he kept Think about it. How many other, except for the movie or hearing about these things, how, how many of you could name one of the athletes who won a gold medal in the 1924 Olympics or the 1928 Olympics or any of those Olympics? Uh, it's not because they, that he won a gold medal, even that he was a, a, an underdog in that. It's because of that commitment that he made uh, to bring honor uh, not to his, first and foremost, to himself or to his country, but honor to God. And the question is, what, what would have happened if he would, would have compromised and run 100 meters? All the experts say he would have won the 100 meters and won a gold medal that way. But recalling the race uh, decades later, his daughter, Patricia, said, the gold in the 400 meters was lovely, but not the most important thing. I truly believe that had he run on Sunday and sold out his commitments, he would not have won. He would not have had that competitive fire. He was running for God's purpose. That sums up. Uh, his life as he ran the race for God. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. As amazing as the first half of Eric Little's life was, the second half was even more amazing. Uh, He arrives in China via the Trans-Siberian Railroad in 1925, one year after winning the Olympic gold medal. Uh, At first, he's a teacher in a school there in China. Uh, he taught science, drama, also taught the Bible, Sunday school, and he coached soccer. Uh, when he was 25 years old, he was interested in the 15-year-old daughter of missionaries, and her name was Florence. When she turned 18, he proposed to her. But her dad said she had to go back to Canada to get her nursing degree before they could get married, so they had to wait another four years. Eric was ordained as a pastor when he turned 30, and they got married uh, two years later when he was 32 and she was 22. Uh, The two of them together led many students uh, to Christ. But then in 1937, war started between China and Japan. Eric and Florence uh, were constantly putting their lives in danger, helping Chinese refugees and leading them to Christ. It became so dangerous that they decided that Florence, who was pregnant with their third child, uh, would go back to Canada uh, with their two daughters, and Eric would stay in China. He puts them on a ship in the harbor, um, waves goodbye to them. They're all along the railing, 
waving goodbye. He's on shore waving goodbye as they go into the distance. Uh, that would be the last time he would ever see them. In 1941, World War II broke out, and Eric was put in a Japanese internment camp. And uh, during this time, he wrote the quote that you see there in your study outline. If I know something to be true, am I prepared to follow it, even though it is contrary to what I want? Will I follow if it means being laughed at by friend or foe, or if it means personal financial loss or some kind of hardship? On February 21st, 1945, he's just finished writing a letter to his wife. He's talking to a friend who had come to visit him about the need to surrender our will to God in everything that we do. And he starts to say the word surrender, and he, and he can't get it out. He goes, surrender, surrender. His head goes back. He slips into a coma, and he dies that evening. He was 43 years old. Autopsy later on revealed he had a brain tumor. Uh, in 2008, just nine years ago, there was a PS to his story. Just before the Beijing Olympic Games, the Chinese government revealed uh, something that no one had ever known, including his family. Eric Little had been included in a prisoner exchange deal between Japan and Britain, but he had given up his place to a pregnant woman. Eric Little, Jay Walden, the Rechabites. Let's use them as examples for us as Purpose Church that men and women of commitment make commitments, keep commitments, and receive the reward from God that comes from promise keepers and commitment keepers. Our prayer is that as God's eyes look around the world and across the nation, he will look at the Christ followers of Purpose Church. And there we'll see people that will bring joy to his heart because they make commitments and they keep commitments. There will be an example for our culture and our society that people will look at us not as judgmental and not as putting down those around us, but as examples of the blessings of keeping commitments to Jesus Christ, the blessings of following him, and that as Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all other people to himself as well. And all God's family said, amen.